Thank you everyone for coming here to the Hudson Institute. My name is Jeff Anderson. I'm a senior fellow here at Hudson. And it's my pleasure to, to, to welcome uh, two of the most prominent writers on health policy in the United States and really public policy more broadly. Uh, Chris Jacobs to my left has a, a long list of uh, experiences. He, he worked uh, recently for Governor Bobby Jindal. He's worked for Senator Jim DeMint, kind of all over the place, and is currently the uh, owner of uh, Juniper Research, Research Group. Um, and Ramesh Panuru is a writer and editor at National Review, also writes for Bloomberg and is affiliated with the American Enterprise Institute. So it's really great to have both of them here today to discuss Obamacare alternatives and, and real health care reform, as I would call it. Obamacare was uh, passed six years ago now by the, the narrowest of margins. It passed the Senate with no votes to spare and the House with three votes to spare. Um, it wasn't popular then. It's not popular now, and I would argue it's not hard to see why. It has raised Americans' health insurance premiums dramatically. It uh, has narrowed doctor networks and hospital networks. It has uh, caused millions of Americans to lose their doctors or access to hospitals. It's funneled tremendous amounts of power from the tributaries to Washington, D.C., power and money. It has, uh, it's put us on course to spend an additional roughly $2 trillion over the next decade, add, add that much to federal spending, according to the Congressional Budget Office. It, uh, its individual mandate is, means that for the first time in all of American history, private American citizens are required to buy a product or service of the federal government's choosing simply as a condition of living in the United States. And this might not even be the most damaging mandate in Obamacare. Its pre-existing conditions mandates uh, have caused prices to skyrocket because they're the equivalent of saying to, home, to homeowners insurance companies, you have to cover anyone whose house has just burned down at the same price as anyone else and cover the existing damage. And as anyone could say, the result of that would be to cause homeowners insurance prices to skyrocket, and we've seen that under Obamacare. These are certainly not the only mandates in the 2,400 pages of Obamacare. It, uh, it bans people, it bans insurers from, from offering plans to younger Americans that, that cost less than a third as much as the plans they offer to older Americans. It bans Americans from saving money by buying insurance plans that don't cover their 25-year-old children. It bans them from saving money by buying plans that don't cover things like pediatric dental care, whether or not they have children. And it effectively bans doctors from, from building doctor-owned hospitals or expanding the existing doctor-owned hospitals. Um, so in short, uh, we have a, in a nation conceived in liberty, we have a health care law that's rooted in coercion. Now, to be fair, there are reasons why some people like Obamacare, and, and chief among them would be that it has increased the number of people with insurance coverage by roughly 20 million. Most of those 20 million people have simply been put on Medicaid per the CBO, and the number of people who have been added to private insurance is, according to the Congressional Budget Office, 8 million people, which is 2.5% of the American population. And I think that's a large part of the problem for Obamacare is the other 97.5% of Americans, most of them have seen their lives made worse by it. I don't think that uh, Obamacare can last. I think that over the next, say, decade or so, the country is going to go in one of two directions, either 
toward an alternative that can repeal and replace Obamacare and get the individual market humming along again, or humming along perhaps as it never has, um, or we're going to end up with a government monopoly over health care. Um, I think you can already see the beginnings of a, of a death spiral in Obamacare. It, uh, it's a slow process, but we already see that uh, largely because of the pre-existing conditions, mandates, and all the other mandates, the, the, the rising costs have made it to where it's really not an attractive product, insurance sold through the Obamacare exchanges, to anyone who's not uh, heavily subsidized or probably already sick or injured. And so as a result, you see already the announcement that next year in Alabama and, and Alaska, there will only be one insurer offering insurance through the Obamacare exchanges. We have single insurer uh, health care. The uh, United Healthcare has, has announced it's going to pull out of most of the Obamacare exchanges next year. The uh, Seth Chandler, a professor at the University of Houston, writes that Houston's arguably the healthcare capital of America, and yet there in Houston, you can no longer get a preferred provider organization health plan through Obamacare. You cannot get the sort of plan that offers you the most flexibility in terms of access to hospitals and doctors. So. I think we're headed in one of two directions, and, and, and even in a larger sense, the, what happens with Obamacare I think will be a, a, a large part of the answer to the question of where we're headed as a country, whether we're headed toward restoring our founding principles of limited government and liberty, or going down a path that Obamacare has started us down of more unlimited government, where power is consolidated and centralized in Washington, D.C. So what we're here to talk about today is is an alternative to Obamacare and what that might look like. One of the things that uh, I think is important to recognize is that there were plenty of things wrong with the American healthcare system before Obamacare was passed, and I would argue made things so much worse. And, and at the root of those problems, I think the, uh, the root of that was, was largely that the federal government had set up a system where those who got insurance, who, who get insurance through their employer, get a generous tax break. And those who go buy insurance on their own don't get a tax break, at least most people who buy insurance on their own, those other than the self-employed. This is just fundamental tax inequality, and, and it's really at the root of most of the problems, I think, that we've seen. And so I, I envision, I think of an Obamacare alternative largely as a project of fixing what the federal government had already broken before Obamacare was passed, in addition to repealing all of Obamacare. And uh, so I've advanced this alternative, which you, some of you probably have a copy of. It's back in the back. And uh, certainly not the only Obamacare alternative out there, but it's the only one, to my knowledge, that's really been road tested in a general election context. Ed Gillespie, when he ran for Senate, the Senate, uh, for Senator from Virginia in the last election, uh, ran on this alternative against the popular incumbent Mark Warner. And Gillespie was behind by 10 points in the polls on the eve of the election, ended up losing by less than one point, 0 0.8 and then wrote in the New York Times shortly thereafter that he didn't think he could have been so competitive in a swing state like Virginia without having run on an actual specific Obamacare alternative. And a lot of what's in this alternative is also the, forms the basis of, of House Budget Committee Chairman Tom Price's alternative, at least the tax treatment in that alternative, which has 84 co-sponsors on uh, in the House of Representatives. So. Gillespie's mentioning the need for a specific Obamacare alternative uh, turns our attention toward the fact that there are a lot of general principles that float around as far as what we would want 
arguably an alternative to Obamacare to look like, what sorts of things we'd want to address, but the devil is largely in the details. And so part of what we want to talk about today, and I want to get these gentlemen's views on, is uh, ten, I've, I've put out 10 guidelines for what I think an alternative should include, and many of you probably have copies of that. Um, they're on the back table. And so I want to ask their opinions about, about those, and I want, to, I want to start, if I could, with the first... Um, the first five guidelines really all relate to this issue of inequity in the tax code or unfairness in the tax code. And so I want to ask both of you, and uh, I guess we'll start with Chris. Um, Chris, do you agree that we, a core aspect of the problem, even before Obamacare, is this inequality in the tre tax treatment of health care between someone who gets insurance to their employer and maybe their next door neighbor who buys it on his own or her own? And, and if so, what needs to be done about that? Sure. Um, yes, it is a problem. And I think everybody on the left and the right agrees that it's a problem. Um, the question is, what, what are you going to do about it? Um, <clears throat> Obamacare did something in terms of the Cadillac tax and refundable subsidies. Um, the question is, what, what would Republicans propose as an alternative? How would they view it? Uh, and, and, and what would their, their treatment of it would be? Um, I would kind of view this, this debate um, in terms of, of, of two general themes that any alternative to Obamacare needs to, to, needs to pass muster on. And the first is intellectual honesty um, and the, the fact that the acknowledgement of trade-offs in the healthcare system. If coming up with a healthcare reform package was easy, Somebody would have done it 30 years ago, regardless of what you think of the merits of Obamacare or not. Um, the problem with President Obama is he promised everything to everyone. And it's kind of like Oprah's favorite things where you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. And everybody got, got a pony in the 2008 campaign and really said this is going to be all things to all people. Um, I remember I taught a class on, on health care in the fall of 2009 as the town halls were kind of ginning up and I told my students before the president addressed the nation in September 2009, see how he addresses the trade-offs here. Who's going to pay for this? Is he actually going to come out and, and say that? And he did. And he, and, he, and he never really did. And there is no perfect solution. You're always going to have winners and losers, unfortunately, um, and at least acknowledging some of them. Uh, Secretary Clinton has proposed a $2,500 out-of-pocket credit, refundable tax credit, a new refundable tax credit for both employer plans and exchange plans to help with out-of-pocket costs. And that's nice, and you're going to sell people on that as a solution, but the more I look at it, the more I think, well, that's just going to encourage employers to jack up their deductibles to $2,500, knowing that the federal government, if anybody reaches that threshold, is going to subsidize your out-of-pocket expenses. And so it, it will basically be a cost shift from the federal government to big business with individuals not benefiting in the, in, in, in the middle. And so you really have to kind of be intellectually honest about, about the trade-offs and acknowledge them. I would say that it's very unlikely that any Republican alternative to Obamacare will cover as many people as Obamacare. That's because, you know, whether you think that's a bug or whether you think that's a feature, not mandating employers offer coverage, not mandating individuals purchase coverage, I don't think you're going to get a coverage number as big as Obamacare. On the tax side, it's very difficult because some of the plans out there 
um, and I'll, I'll, I'll include Jeff's in there, are trying to argue simultaneously that, number one, we can fund coverage for a, an insurance subsidy, a refundable tax credit, for however many individuals that will lose coverage under Obamacare, 10, 20 million, pick, pick your number, roughly that many people. And we'll find enough savings in the tax code to fund those, those new subsidies. But we won't affect employer coverage for anybody or the vast majority of people. Um, that their current tax break for employer-provided coverage, we might limit it for the very top 1%, but really not too many people. And I think there's the danger there of trying to be all things to all people and say, you know, one of those two things potentially can, can end up not being true, and potentially both of them cannot be true. Um, I'm also recall the fact that, that irrespective of whether the budget scorekeepers agree, um, I don't know that the Americans did not take comfort from saying Obama and Obamacare, the idea that we can change the tax treatment of health insurance and that, which we need to do, but that individuals with employer-sponsored coverage won't feel threatened or discouraged by that if we're taking some of that money to fund subsidies for people currently on Obamacare. I don't know that that's, I, I, I think that presents some both policy obstacles and political obstacles. Um, I think the second principle really is a need to be humble and, and a humility there when, when it comes to health policy. Um, both a practical and a philosophical humility. The first question is, when, from the practical side of, will it work? Okay, we've seen with Obamacare, they thought, uh, the, the left thought it had all the answers and we've got this grand plan and the 2700 page bill and it'll work perfectly. Well, it hasn't worked perfectly by any stretch. The exchanges are, are teetering. Uh, some of them may end up collapsing. Some of them may end up just kind of poking along. Um, but certainly not the kind of interest and not the kind of enrollment uh, that advocates of the law first argued and, and, and projected. Um, do we necessarily think that a conservative alternative to Obamacare will work? Um, you can say all sorts of things about the benefit mandates, and, and it's true that the benefit mandates are causing higher deductibles, narrow networks, and really kind of goofy-looking insurance policies that look quite unlike anything that's been offered in the private market today. By the same token, any conservative Republican alternative will probably lead to similar high deductible health plans, not similar plans, but plans with also with high deductibles. And so if people aren't buying Obamacare coverage, are we sure that they're going to buy coverage under on alternative? Um, can we be sure of that? Um, and, and, and I'm kind of, the, the past year, couple of years have shown us be very careful about somebody promising to have all the answers because most of the time they, they don't. Um, and somewhat philosophically is um, from a conservative perspective, how much of this should be dictated from Washington? Is it really Washington's place to say we're going to try to impose a centrally, um, you know, a, a, another big, I won't say big government, but certainly a comprehensive scheme, uh, plan um, and trying to, as opposed to let, letting the states sort out 
through their use of state insurance laws, through state liability reforms, through state reforms of medical licensing and, and those sorts of issues. Um, that I, I really think the tax treatment of health insurance, to get back to your original question, is something that has to be dealt with at the federal level. That's quite clearly a federal role. But I think there's a danger in, number one, not acknowledging the trade-offs, because sooner or later you're going to have to acknowledge them. Um, you might not have to have every answer to every trade-off at this point while we're in an election year, but you need to acknowledge them. And then a humility of making sure that we don't think that, that we have all the answers and we will dictate all the answers in the same kind of hubris that really defined both substantively and procedurally this Obamacare that was rammed through on a party line vote. So that's a very long answer to a, <laughs> to a short question. But Thank you, Chris. I, for the benefit of those of you who maybe don't have the guidelines in front of you, I thought I'd just quickly go through the, the five that are related to the tax treatment of health insurance. These are five of the ten guidelines I've laid out for what they're worth. One, it would not change, an Obamacare alternative would not change the tax treatment of the typical employer-based plan, the typical person's plan. Two, it would, it would close the tax loophole in the employer-based market, which says the more you spend on insurance, the more you save in taxes. So it closed the loophole, loophole by capping the tax break at the high end, which would not affect the typical plan. Three, it would provide a long overdue tax break to everyone in the individual market in the form of a tax credit. Four, this tax credit would really be a tax credit, not a direct subsidy to insurance companies like we see under Obamacare. And five, this tax break would not be income tested and hence would not pick winners and losers, which is a large part of Obamacare is all about picking winners and losers. So with those in mind, I want to ask Ramesh, uh, you can feel free to address any of these specifically, whether you think these are, are good guidelines or not, or just tackle the, the broader question of do we need to fix this tax inequality in, in healthcare that really goes back about 70 years, and if so, how do we need to do it? Well, I think the glaring problem with these 10 principles is that there's nothing about lines around states, which is the beginning and the end of healthcare reform, I have been informed uh, pretty uh, authoritatively. Um, somebody drew lines around states. We could call them state lines, and uh, and obviously those those just have to be removed. You don't want a big beautiful wall. Yeah, you know, not around the states. Oh, okay. No. Uh, maybe collectively around the states. Um, I I largely agree with these principles. Let me um, talk about a point which I think that your plan actually um, adheres to, but it is not explicit in these 10 principles that, um, that I think is, is important and gets to one of the trade-offs um, that Chris was talking about. Uh, I do think that one of the important um, considerations uh, in designing a conservative healthcare replacement plan um, is that you've got to prevent its unraveling the employer-based health insurance market. Uh, and it, that's not just or maybe even primarily a matter of not changing the tax treatment of employer-provided insurance. It's also a matter of not allowing the youngest and healthiest people who are covered by employer-provided insurance, sorry to some of you in this uh, room, uh, to exit those markets and get a better deal in the individual marketplace using this new tax break. Um, so. 
Uh, I think it is absolutely right that we've got to change the tax treatment of health insurance, largely along the lines that Jeff uh, and others have been talking about. But one of the conditions, at least for the time being, has to be, I think, that if you have access to an employer-provided plan, you can't use the tax credit or whatever kind of tax break you get to buy insurance on the individual market um, precisely because uh, you run the risk of uh, unraveling that employer-provided market. If all the young and healthy people leave, then your premiums go up, uh, and then it becomes sort of a vicious circle um, where uh, then sort of the next less, the, the, the next youngest and uh, healthiest people um, facing these higher premiums want to exit and so on and so forth. Um, that's a real trade-off because ideally, uh, you know, particularly if we hadn't created this set of subsidies for employer-provided insurance, we'd have a more portable and individualized marketplace. Um, and you know, ideally, we wouldn't be sort of trapping people in these markets and forcing them to cross-subsidize other people um, in this indirect way. But I think that there are legitimate policy and political considerations that suggest, again, for the time being, that that has to stay in place. Now, it may be that after you've actually, for some years, expanded the individual market, made it more robust, uh, because it's been pretty stunted by a lot of federal and state policies, um, that you can, uh, you can, over time, relax that restriction. But I do think that that's, uh, that's an important thing, uh, which gets to I guess my, my fundamental political point about health reform, it does seem to me that the central political fact about the politics of, of health care over the last few years has been the fear of disruption of existing insurance arrangements. Um, that's what the Obama team used against John McCain in 2008. It was precisely because his plan didn't have the restriction I'm talking about that the, and because it involved an increase in, in taxes on employer-provided insurance, arguably. Um, they just hammered him with $44 million worth of ads on that point. It's why when he was selling health care reform, President Obama made uh, as much of a fuss as he did about the idea that if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. And it's why the biggest political problem Obamacare has faced has been the revelation that that promise was not true. Now, I don't think that conservatives should go out and and promise that nobody's insurance is ever going to be affected, even indirectly, by the kinds of reforms we want. Uh, but we do need to be mindful of that problem and, uh, and, and try to, to head it off. Thank you. One of the things that I, um, I have uh, emphasized, I guess, in, in my thinking is that the, uh, I think it's important for, uh, for any sort of fixing the inequality in the tax code, it, it has to benefit everyone. In, in the employer-based market, everybody who gets employer-based health insurance gets a tax break, at least anyone who pays taxes. And on the individual side, I think to actually fix this problem, to get the federal government's foot off the scale, we need to make sure that the tax break goes to everyone in the individual market. And I would echo everything Ramesh just said about how not disrupting the employer-based market is essential. I mean, we have uh, people with employer-based health care are pretty uniformly happy with it. They like it. And the notion of disrupting the tax treatment of employer-based insurance, I think, is an idea without a constituency. It's just not a place that anyone needs to go. Um, but I'm curious what, uh, what you two gentlemen think about this, this, this fifth point on the, the, the tax break. Let's leave, leave the question alone for a second, whether it should be a tax credit, as I've called for, or something else. But that it should not be income-tested, and hence should not pick winners and losers. Uh, 
That, that was actually the, 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 what I was about to ask you if I could, if I could uh, address that. Um, it's, I, uh, I don't know if I would elevate this opposition to, to income testing to the level of a principle. Um, I think that there are, just, there are some trade-offs here. There are some real advantages um, to not having an income test. One is simplicity. Two, um, I think, is uh, that you avoid the problem of disincentives to work. Um, if you look, if you may remember that report that the Congressional Budget Office released, which suggested that the equivalent of 2.5 million jobs would be lost as a result of Obamacare. They're, they they don't precisely quantify which features of, Ob of Obamacare are responsible for what proportion of that uh, loss of job equivalents, but it sure seems as though they're suggesting that the um, that the the way these subsidies are income tested is responsible for a big chunk of that job loss. That is, because of the way that uh, the income testing works, if you work harder, if you get a raise, uh, work longer hours, um, your subsidy declines, and that reduces your incentive to do those things. So those are two very important reasons um, not to do income testing. On the other side of it, um, if you income test, there are two things you can do, which is concentrate the benefit on the people who most need it, and keep the budget cost down. Um, and it just seems to me that it may be that the answer is you've got a, you do a simpler and gentler slope uh, for an income test. Um, what I would just say is I, I could live with such a thing in congressional horse trading um, uh, because you know, those, those budgetary and uh, uh, targeting um, considerations are real ones. Let me raise just two objections to that, if I may, before. That, to my mind, that makes it sound more like it's something of a welfare program, or perhaps a welfare program even for the middle class, that some people get it, some people don't. We're concentrating the benefits on the needy, as opposed to what I envision it properly being is a, just having a tax break that's basically available to everyone in, in a similar fashion, regardless of whether they buy their own health care or get it through their employer. Um, and a second objection, I guess, would be that um, the way we have it set up in the employer-based market is the, the more you pay in taxes, the wealthier you are, the bigger your tax break is for buying health insurance, all other things being equal, because you, if you get to write off uh, the costs of your, or your, if your health insurance costs do not, are not added to your income and you pay 39.6% income tax, well, that's a major drop in, in, your tax, in your tax burden, whereas if you only have a a 10% marginal income tax rate, it's not worth as much to you. So the wealthier get a bigger tax break in terms of raw value, even though it's not, it's not income adjusted per se, it's just the way it works out with the way deductions work. On the employer side, what uh, Ramesh is, is positing is something that's sort of the opposite, where uh, you, you get a, a nice benefit for a while, but then it really drops off to where eventually, at some point, you'd get nothing at all. and so. It's not making the two sides equal. Um, so to the extent that we are trying to truly equalize the treatment of the two sides, that would, uh, I'd raise that as, as a problem. But let me let Chris jump in here. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there, there are trade-offs on both of these approaches. Um, and I think the, the caution, in fact, it was, it was in my notes here. The caution is we see all the problems of Obamacare, so we just want to do the opposite of Obamacare, and therefore that's going to solve the problem. No, not necessarily. It's just going to raise other other problems. Pretty good rule, though, to follow. <laughs> but 
And I think the concern there is if you end up with an income uh, with, with an age-rated credit or not means-tested by income, you could end up spending a lot of money to cover not a lot of people because the only people who would take it would be wealthy people and low-income folks may not, you know, right now they're getting $20,000, $25,000 a year potentially in premium and cost-sharing subsidies and to take that down to a few thousand dollars, um, you know, right now, low-income folks are the only ones that are buying these policies in, in significant numbers, in terms of a, a significant percentage of the, the uninsured population is actually buying these plans because they are getting ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 per family in subsidies. So what happens if you scale that back to $5,000? Are they actually going to buy, or are they going to walk away? Um, so I think I agree with Ramesh about the work disincentives. And, and CBO actually did put out, I think they did an elasticity study last year and said that most of the job loss is due to the work disincentives of hitting these cliffs, and all of a sudden you get one additional dollar of income, and you go one dollar above 400% of the poverty level, and your $10,000 a year subsidy goes away completely, poof. Um, that obviously is creating perverse incentives, and, and, and you, see, uh, you, you see that. So I, I, I totally disagree with you about the work disincentives, but I don't know that an age-related credit um, is, is, is going to be, be, be helpful there in the, in the long term. One thing that I think is, is important in all this is that an Obamacare alternative, to my mind, ought to be simple, as simple as it can be. I mean, we're talking about a fifth to a sixth of the economy. The federal government has become extremely involved in it and now, and so it can only be so simple. But I think like what I've called for in my plan is th three simple age bands. If you're under 35, you'd get a $1,200 tax credit. If you're between 35 and 50, you'd get $2,100. If you're over 50, you'd get $3,000. Um, everyone could very quickly add up what they would be getting. Another reason, arguably, to not have an income-tested tax credit is, I mean, under Ob or, or subsidy or whatever it is at this point, a tax, tax break subsidy, um, under Obamacare, nobody has any idea what they're getting. I mean, if your income changes by a dollar, your subsidy changes. If Whatever county you're in, it changes. There's 3,000 counties in the United States. Every time an insurance company rolls out a new plan and becomes the new second cheapest silver plan in your county, your subsidy changes. I, I mean, it's it's a Byzantine process that no one knows until tax time whether they got too much, too little, whether they owe the IRS. The IRS has a very active role in all of this. So I would argue that um, simplicity is important in all of this, and I think... The, the, other, the other potential downside to age rating and not income testing a, a credit is that do you potentially increase the opportunity for employers to drop coverage? The one thing we have not seen. Of all the predictions that, uh, about Obamacare that have come true, the one thing we have not seen is many employers en masse dropping coverage. Yes, there have been isolated incidents, but by and large it has not come to fruition, which is one of the reasons why the enrollment is so low. And I think because the exchanges are kind of teetering, nobody wants to be the first to go to the exits and everybody's been kind of holding off because of the un, un, instability of the exchanges and then the political uncertainty of, of what could happen in November. But if you create a system of age-rated tax credits, then all of a sudden the white shoe law firm, which 
If they drop health coverage, none of their partners are going to get a subsidy, an income-related subsidy on the exchange. But if you make it based by age, well, there might be some 50- and 60-year-old partners. They'll get a subsidy. So it's, it's more incentive for employers to drop. Can you model that? What are the, what are the chances of that? I don't know. But that is, the, the, again, another argument for, as, as Ramesh was talking about, keeping this stability or trying to keep this stability for an income rated as opposed to an age rated credit. Isn't that sort of another way, though, of saying that these, the plans that would likely be offered under such an alternative would actually be attractive? It, it, yeah, I mean, and, 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 that's, that, and that's, that's, that's the other way there. Um, it, you know, and you can try to design firewalls around that. Um, the firewalls in Obamacare to keep people out of the exchanges are relatively low. In Massachusetts, if an employer drops coverage, you cannot get a subsidy for six months. You have to go uninsured for six months. That, that's not present in Obamacare, that an employer could drop coverage on December 31 and individuals could walk right into the exchange. So in theory, you can try to, to but it's another factor that you would certainly have to consider and, and may try to mitigate against, but you know, it, it, it's another wild card. Did you want to add anything or measure? No, no, that's all right. So and, and let's get into the matter of, there's sort of, I would argue there's three basic ways to deal with a, a tax break, or one of them is really not a tax break, I would argue. But you, you can, in order to offer something in the individual market that's more or less akin to the tax break that's offered in the employer-based market, you can either make it a deduction, which is literally like in the employer market, a tax deduction, a tax credit, or a direct subsidy to insurance companies, which is what Obamacare does, although it gets labeled, I would argue, falsely as a tax credit by the government scorekeepers. Uh, the distinction, quickly, is just that a, a tax deduction is, allows you to, if you buy a $5,000 insurance plan, you get to deduct $5,000 from your taxable income. If you have a tax credit of, say, you know, it depends on what the credit is, but let's say it's $2,000. Whatever your taxable income, whatever your tax burden in, ends up being, you can just drop that amount by $2,000. It's like getting $2,000 in your pocket. And a direct subsidy to insurance companies doesn't come to you, doesn't affect your tax burden. It's just the government paying money to an insurance company on your behalf. And that's what Obamacare does. So a lot of the debate over how to tackle these things has come down to this question of what should the form of this tax break, or in the last case, subsidy B. And Ramesh, let me uh, start with you since Chris uh, had the last word there. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I suppose you can see a credit and a deduction is the same thing under a flat tax. So <laughs> see the, uh, the credit as kind of a down payment on a, uh, on a flat tax there. Um, I, think, uh, I think that uh, just for a very practical reason, the credit makes the most sense. Um, uh, and that is that uh, while I while I agree with Chris that you can't guarantee that people are going to um, actually take up the offer and uh, and purchase health insurance, I do think that making at the very least catastrophic insurance um, available to nearly everybody is worth doing, and that uh, that a credit makes that possible in a way a deduction just doesn't. Can you explain that a little bit? Why why does the credit make it more possible? Well, just because if you're if if you are in one of the lower tax brackets, the deduction's just not going to be worth much to you and it's just not going to make enough of a difference to help you buy that insurance. Indeed, something like forty percent of Americans don't pay any income tax and so they would get nothing from an income tax deduction. And these are the very people that get the most under Obamacare. Um, 
Okay, Chris, go ahead. Well, in, in, in the American Next plan that came up with a couple of years ago, we proposed a standard deduction um, for health insurance and basically equalized the treatment between individual and employer. Um, as Jeff pointed out, the downside of that is what do you, people who don't pay taxes or don't have an income tax liability. Uh, and then we propose some subsidy and basically run it through the states and call it a subsidy and let the states decide how to um, subsidize at what thresholds, what kind of plans, and, and, and really devolve it rather than doing a lot of this, this from Washington. Um, a credit is much more redistributive, uh, which you can argue whether or not that's a feature or a mug. Um, and, and certainly there are arguments on, on, on both sides of that. But uh, again, it, part of the, the, the point was um, to kind of avoid some of the redistributive aspects of the credit and call a subsidy a subsidy and actually pay for it by cutting spending as opposed to through the tax code and also devolve it to the states and try to let them be more innovative uh, and come up with their own solutions rather than trying to impose it from Washington. Um, to Jeff's point in terms of a, a credit versus a subsidy, and this is something we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, and I think it's a case where we're potentially overlearning the, 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 um, the mistakes of Obamacare. Um, if you give a credit directly to, to individuals, ultimately I think that is something that would not happen in a, in a real fire legislative context um, because I, my sense is that the scorekeepers, Congressional Budget Office and, and Joint Committee on Taxation said, well, if you give the credit directly to individuals and there's maybe, maybe some substantiation on the back end with the IRS, maybe not, that they're going to use it on other things and that you're going to get a lot of, not a lot of coverage take up and potentially a lot of spending because frankly you give people a, a, a credit of that size, do they actually use it to buy health insurance or do they go to Best Buy and get a big screen TV? Um, you know, one example I, I had when I was working for Governor Jindal is there was a, um, I think it was down in Louisiana, there was a, a lingerie store that came out with a sign, and trust me, there's, there's a point to this. Um, that, that came out, uh, put, put a sign on its front door that said, we take EBT cards for you know, food stamps and whatever. Well, it took about two nanoseconds for the Department of Health and Hospitals and Department to say, ah, no, you're not spending food stamp money on you know, lingerie shops. And then the legislature went and passed a bill. And I think the first thing you would need, potentially, is any kind of these anecdotes of people using big screen, you know, big screen, and I think you would see Congress uh, uh, crack down in a heartbeat. I don't think it would get to that point. The earned income tax credit, which is a refundable tax credit, um, has an incidence of, of fraud and improper payments of around 20 to 25 percent, and that's been fairly consistent over the years. Um, and so that's that's a big problem. And I think, as I said, it's, it's a nice talking point. I certainly, because Barack Obama beat up John McCain in 2008 for saying John McCain's tax credit will go directly to the insurance companies. Of course, the Obamacare tax credit goes directly to the insurance companies. Yeah, and, I, and I've, you know, I, I beat him up for that hypocrisy when I was on the Hill and, and, and you know, it was the opportunistic demagoguery, which again goes to the intellectual honesty part that I talked about earlier. Um, but I don't think in a legislative context for the same reason that the law as written provides subsidies directly to the insurance companies, notwithstanding the political grandstanding that Obama did in 2008, 
I think the same thing would happen here. To, to be totally honest, I am for people being allowed to make their own trade-offs between lingerie and healthcare, but uh, well, their and, dollars. And, but I see, I see. And, and people, point, people, yes. people tried to argue that with me. In fact, I, I had a conversation with a campaign. They said, "Well, a libertarian would say you should be allowed to do that." Mm -hmm. Well, if you're talking about a refundable tax credit, which is government, you know, then I then I think it would be incumbent on on. It's it's one thing if it's a refund of a tax you already paid and you're doing something with your own money that the government gave you back. It's another thing if, the, if you didn't owe any taxes to begin with, the government is giving you money and cutting you a check. Then I think at that point, some realistic restrictions on that are, are more appropriate. I would agree that the government scorekeepers would, would say that this would lead to all kinds of fraud. They, they have, a, I would argue, a built-in bias in favor of having the government do things. Better to have the government send the check to the insurance company. Let's cut out the middleman of the American citizenry. Um, but I, I do find it curious in this that every, every aspect of, of some sort of tax deduction or, or tax credits, certainly refundable tax credits, is, is open to fraud, not to mention Medicare, which is just I mean, mm -hmm. rampant fraud. What is it, $60 billion a year in fraud uh, under, under Medicare? I mean, that's real money. It's more than the top 10, the 10 largest insurance companies made in profits right before Obamacare was passed in a, in a given year. But so we don't seem to worry too much about all the fraud that would come about from somebody saying, oh, I've, got, I've got seven kids, when in reality they have one, and getting a, a juicy refundable tax credit from that. Or if somebody says, I have a mortgage payment, I'm deducting this. I mean, we, A, we have checks. I mean, I, I think mortgage companies have to actually send something to the IRS as some proof. But I, I would make it, I would put the onus on, on health insurance companies. They should have to send something, a you know, simple one-page form to the IRS saying this person does have health insurance. Um, but it seems like all of a sudden we're more concerned with fraud in this particular context than we are in similar areas. I, I mean, I've been concerned about fraud in Medicare for, for years. I think, actually, you brought up that one of the best arguments for premium support is cutting down on fraud. Mm -hmm. Because private insurance companies do a heck of a lot better job cutting down on fraud and are light years ahead of where the government is because the government's job is to pay checks pay claims. And, and so I, I don't think, and, and there has been a consistent, you know, certain areas in Congress, and it hasn't gotten a lot of attention, uh, maybe enough attention, of cracking down on fraud. It is certainly not enough, and we need to do more. This is actually one thing that uh, President Obama and the Obama administration, they felt the need to, um, to ramp up on in 2009 and 2010 as they were making the push to pass the law to say, we want to be good stewards, we're, we need to crack down on, on, on Medicare fraud and every, everything else like that. Um, I think it's been ineffective and the crooks are always, you know, three if not five steps ahead of the, the, the government auditors there. But I wouldn't view it as, well, we're not caring about this fraud here, so let's create some more fraud over there. Go ahead, Ramit. Um, so three loose ends I'd like to uh, um, uh, tie up, if, uh, and I'll try not to be uh, too long-winded on any of them. First, on the fraud point, I think uh, the totally reasonable point, I would just say when we talk about Medicare fraud, uh, and, and I'm just sort of really underscoring something that, that Chris pointed out, we need to, I, I think we too often talk about it as though um, this is something that you can just fix. 
when there are structural reasons for that fraud. And I do think that moving towards something like premium support helps get at some of those structural problems in a way that uh, just saying, well, we're going to crack down on fraud wouldn't do. Premium um, support, by the way, being the Paul Ryan-led House budget proposal for reforming Medicare. Right. Uh, and then the, and that, which brings me to a second point, which is that um, I think that, uh, you know, I understand we're, we're talking about 10 principles for healthcare reform and, and keeping things simpler, uh, but it really is the case that a market-based replacement of Obamacare works better if you are also reforming Medicare in a more pro-market competitive direction because, you know, it's just you've got this price-setting bureaucracy, you've got these enormous subsidies. It's just an incredibly large part of the health insurance market um, that is still run on kind of sclerotic socialistic lines, uh, and you'd have a more robust market uh, if you simultaneously address that. And then finally, um, the point about the states, um, Chris has raised this, um, and I think it's important. I think actually, if you think, I mean, Having to think through sort of what's really wrong with Obamacare, um, there are you know, federal health policy, state health policy has been very bad for a very long time, uh, and it's uh, it has been we have oversubsidized health care. We have had um, too redistributive and too regulatory uh, set of health care policies. But the, and the great problem with Obamacare for me is that it it makes the federal government the primary regulator. Um, for the first time, and that is the central problem. I mean, you can change the subsidies in, I think, a more rational way, and we should, and we're, we're talking about that, but the key thing is to decentralize, uh, and so if you get rid of a federal essential health benefits package, if you get rid of um, the uh, the federal pre-existing regulation, which, is, which amounts really to saying that we're going to outlaw health insurance, um, and then you create all kinds of opportunities. Some states, states can have some, some of these health insurance regulations. Um, states can continue to regulate the safety and soundness of insurance companies. Um, states can set up exchanges if they want to. Um, but those exchanges shouldn't, I think, be basically conduits for federal subsidies, where the federal government is encouraging states to do it or not to do it. And, uh, and in general, my sense of this is that uh, the way you liberate the states is mostly by having the federal government withdraw from areas as opposed to sending the states money to do with as they want, which I think for a variety of reasons is probably something to be minimized. can't be avoided altogether. It may be, for example, in the Medicaid context that it is better to have a block grant approach than what we have now. But even there, I would say probably you're better off converting a big chunk of the Medicaid, Medicaid funds into, uh, into a credit that's given directly to beneficiaries. Pick up just one last loose end as well on, uh, from that as part of our discussion that Chris had mentioned that a, a tax credit is more redistributive than a, a tax deduction. And that's why I always find it striking when we talk about potentially income testing it. I mean, a, a tax mm -hmm. credit is already a very progressive sure. notion. I mean, it's worth give a $2,000 tax credit to somebody who makes $20,000. That is a windfall. Give it to somebody who makes $200,000, it's nice, but it's not worth nearly as much to them. You start income testing it, and it's a, a progressive thing becomes hyper-progressive. And we, we seem to talk more about income testing tax credits than we do income testing deductions when it really, I would, I would argue that income testing tax credits is problematic in general, just as a matter of uh, general respect for property rights and not being redistributive. But um, let, me, let me move on a little bit, because I want to make sure we hit. Chris had mentioned earlier on that the uh, uh, 
it's probably impossible for any sort of um, alternative that's more conservative or more free market-based to, to have the sort of overall coverage numbers that Obamacare has. And again, Obamacare is, according to the Congressional Budget Office, about 20 million people added to coverage, but most of them on Medicaid, about 12 million on Medicaid, 13 million. Um, so I want to turn our, our discussion to what should the goals be? The ones I lay out here, I, the 8th, 9th, and 10th guidelines are that the alternative should save about a trillion dollars versus Obamacare, that it should result in about the same number of people being covered by private health insurance as under Obamacare, and I would say a less important goal, the 10th point, that it would provide a, uh, it should provide a tax cut, not only versus Obamacare, but even versus the pre-Obamacare status quo. Um, so, so what I'm saying basically is that I think the goals should be to be, to basically match Obamacare on private insurance coverage and to save about a trillion dollars and cut taxes. And, and I'm curious whether you agree with those goals or would have other ones in mind. You know, and that, that gets to, 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 to kind of my first point. I, I'm, and, and I know Jeff and I, we've discussed it. it suffice it to say I'm, I'm slightly dubious of, of, of those numbers and, and a score because if Obamacare could have done all those things, don't you think it already would have done it? And, you know, I, I, Barack Obama didn't, remember, he ran against the individual mandate. He ran to Hillary's left. I don't know if it was, he ran, he ran against the mandate in the primaries in 2008. He was only forced there because CBO said the, the coverage numbers would be awful if you implemented the, the, the subsidy regime without, without, without a mandate. Um, and so, in theory, those principles are fine. I, I don't think they're going to happen, is, is, is to, to, to be quite candid about it. Um, and that's where I, I think um, acknowledging trade-offs needs, needs, needs to come there because, you know, and, and, and Jeff and I talked about this previously, well, why should we let what CBO says di dictate? And that's a very valid point. I've been critical of, of CBO and particularly Doug Elmendorf when he was head of the CBO. Um, they did a lot of things wrong, specifically with, with regards to the Class Act in Obamacare, uh, and have gone around and around with, with them and with Dr. Elmendorf specifically on that. Um, but to kind of paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld, you go into legislative situation with, with the army you have, not the army you want to have. Um, and I think sooner or later, you know, the question is, do you want to make a bill, do you want to make a law or do you want to make a point? If you want to make a point, fine, say whatever you want. If you want to make a law, then sooner or later you're going to have to, to abide by this construct whether we like it or not. Quick, quick pet peeve on the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office. They, they're like a, a group that, like you know, we just saw the Preakness Stakes this last weekend, they're like a group that handicaps the horse race and then never actually never looks to see who crosses the finish line first. A lot, right? I mean, we're constantly seeing projections of costs. How many times do you see the CBO say, this is what it actually cost since 2014, 2010? Good luck finding those numbers from the CBO or anywhere else in the federal government. So anyway. And, I, 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 was, I, was, and I was very critical of Dr. Elmendorf for what they did on the Class Act, because the Class Act was one thing that ultimately allowed Obamacare to pass. It was not actuarially sound. It was, HHS later 
certified it as being not actuarially sound. There was analysis that CBO could have done at the time that might have bills passage. And okay, so you will win. You will win no love for CBO from me on that. By the same token, I'm a realist in the sense that they are what they are. They are what they are. We're not going to pass a law saying, well, we don't like this score. We're going to, you know, throw it out and have directed scorekeeping, or somebody else is going to, you know, with a calculator is going to do that. It's just not going to happen. And and regardless, you're going to have to come up and 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 sooner or later, if anybody, any presidential candidate, comes out with a with a specific enough proposal, there are going to be other folks on the left who are going to try to model it and come up with conclusions. And I think those modeled conclusions will be contrary to, to, to what you're saying and will, of course, be going to attack ads used by the Clinton campaign. Um, let me talk about two of the trade-offs that, uh, that have come up here. One, um, uh, the individual mandate that we talked about. People always talk about how unpopular the individual mandate, or people like us always talk about how unpopular the individual mandate is. People who are for Obamacare tend to talk a lot about how popular the provision about pre-existing conditions is. But these are paired provisions. Um, that uh, uh, you know, really the reason you've got the individual mandate, the reason Obama reversed himself on that is that if you're going to have a ban on insurers taking account of pre-existing conditions, um, then you've created an incentive for people just to wait until they're sick to buy insurance. Uh, the market's not going to work that way, and so you've got to force healthy people to buy insurance as well. And one of the trade-offs of a conservative replacement, I think, is that you've got to, uh, you, you get to get rid of the individual mandate, uh, hooray, but you do have the political problem that you, although there are different ways of taking care of people with pre-existing conditions, none of them are as simple and easy to digest as saying, well, you just can't discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. So that's that's one so that's one of the uh, the trade-offs that you face. And the second is, you know, can you have a high coverage number uh, and lower premiums and lower deductibles and so on and so forth? Well, uh, I think you may very well be able to do that, but the trade-off there is what gets covered. And the argument from the left is going to be it's substandard coverage. It's coverage that doesn't take, doesn't include all of this preventive um, uh, benefits. Now, I think that that trade-off is worth making, or more precisely, worth letting people make on their own, um, because I think we've created this system uh, under Obamacare where uh, your day-to-day um, -day ordinary expenses are covered by insurance, but your deductible is so high that you are exposed to serious financial emergencies if something goes really wrong, and this seems to me to be more or less the opposite of what you want health insurance to do. Um, so that's one way of suggesting that, yes, you can have higher coverage, you can have lower costs, but that doesn't mean there's no trade-off. The trade-off is exactly the, the sort of the breadth of the benefits that's covered, and that absolutely will be the political line of attack on it. Let me just very quickly, uh, before we open it up to questions here, um, the, the only two guidelines we haven't hit at all are, one of them is very important, the seventh one, it, that an alternative should provide common sense consumer protections for pre-existing conditions that don't undermine the entire notion of insurance. I would argue, as Ramesh has said, Obamacare basically un um, bans the notion of insurance, which dates back at least to the Renaissance, namely that you have to buy something, you have to buy protection against a possible future event before the future event happens. And if you don't, if you 
if you break that down, then what you're left with is skyrocketing prices. The way, the way I've put it on other occasions is that the ba- I mean, it is somewhat of an oversimplification. The basic method of Obamacare here is to make insurance into a product that nobody would voluntarily buy and then force everybody to buy it. <laughs> right, right. And then, I mean, we could talk a lot more about that, but I don't want to lose a chance for Q&A. So here, for, and then the, very quickly, the, the eighth and final guideline is to, uh, I'm sorry, the sixth one is, is to provide a, this is probably a less essential one, but to provide a one-time $1,000 tax credit for opening or already having a health savings account to encourage people to have control of their own health care dollars and, uh, and hence be able to shop for value. But you didn't know somebody's going to create health savings accounts? What's that? We're going to create health savings accounts once we tear down the lines. <laughs> yes, right. The, this is a reference to the Trump plans author, perhaps not having been aware that health savings accounts have been in the law since 2003. All right. So uh, and if any of you aren't aware, if you, if you didn't see it on the way in, we have a giant, in fact, you can see it out the window, there's a giant blue Trump sign on the new uh, Trump Hotel. It's about 20 feet high and 50 feet wide. It says, coming 2016, Trump. So. All right, uh, gentlemen in the, on the aisle here. Just shout. <laughs> and uh, these issues are vitally important uh, to, uh, to innovation. Uh, I have three 30-second points, and one of them is a little frivolous, which is regarding the crack about the uh, fence around each state. The only fence that I know of currently being built is one that's going from six feet to ten feet around the White House, and it could be that most people are just trying to get in to get that better health insurance that the president has. Uh, the, the, uh, the second point is that HSAs are actually uh, have been an excellent program. They were growing at 70% per year prior to Obamacare, and they are already above uh, uh, HMOs, and 18 million uh, users compared to 17 for HMOs. HMOs were declining from uh, in the order of 50 million, I think, uh, due to the obstreperous um, management of it. And, and uh, Obamacare and government-run systems will simply be uh, HMOs on steroids. So I think that politically, that Obamacare has a lot less weight than many of the politicians are so so afraid of, especially the Republicans, of, of opposing it. And the um, third point is uh, one that was just alluded to, which is that the credit may go to, instead of to the individual, could go into the health savings account, and it could be $2,000 first year and 2000 second year and 2003rd year to cover that uh, savings account uh, dedu- um, hole mm-hmm. that uh, it is confounding uh, Obamacare people. So those are things, those three points, two points, uh, are ones that I, um, I, I heard uh, not, not a lot about. One other point is, is that um, um, there's an, uh, about 10 million people who are self-insured, and the Massachusetts um, uh, plan did address that. It allowed people to set, say, okay, you don't want to buy uh, an insurance program that has a 30% para- parasitic drag, which... Um, is the case whenever you have insurance. Uh, just allow people to self-insure, but have them um, uh, set up a, a uh, something in advance, as in Massachusetts plan, that 
says that fine if you're going to hit a fifty thousand or hundred thousand or two million dollar plan then you have you have some insurance to cover that thank you purchased on your thank you sir anybody want to tackle any of that or I, I, I think HSAs have been very popular, and there have been studies in health affairs and elsewhere that have, that have shown that they've been able, they've been one tool in the tool chest to help reduce costs. Um, it's also helpful when employers contribute, uh, which in many cases employers do, um, because as you point out, there is kind of a startup cost if you've got a high deductible and at the start of the year and you don't have savings uh, accumulated up there, there can be a cash flow problem. The, the, the last point you made is kind of interesting. This was one, one point of the Massachusetts health care law that Governor Romney said, you, well, you can post a bond if you don't want to have an individual mandate. I believe the legislature in Massachusetts actually line item veto or, or overrode that veto or something like that. Um, but I know that's kind of been an issue uh, to, to allow pe people to, to, to self-insure in, in one way, shape, or form. You know, the, the way is, how do you crack down on free riders? There are all sorts of different ways to do that. I was just thinking about Phil Graham in, when he was a senator uh, back in the Hillary Care debate in 1992, had one to basically say, if you don't, and I believe he offered a credit or, or some type of subsidy, basically repeal the bankruptcy protection, that you can't file bankruptcy for medical claims if you're offered a subsidy and you turn it down. Now, some people would say that would be harsh, um, you know, and is it a backdoor mandate because there's some kind of requirement in there or whatever? That's another way to get around it because, of course, the hospitals say, well, people can show up on, their, on our door and we have to treat them and because of EMTALA and, you know, incur bad debt costs and all, all that sort of stuff. So there are different ways to get at that. I would argue in the big picture sense of things that the, the health savings, I mean, we really are going to, you almost have to go in the direction of health savings accounts or something like them, which are really all about having people control their own health care dollars be able to shop for value. If people can shop for value, prices will come down, the market will work like it does in most sectors of American society. Or the other direction is to have the government ration care. And those are pretty much the options, and I think that's part of why Obamacare has been so, so unfriendly to HSAs, is they realize what a direct competitor that is to, to their vision. Gentlemen here in the sunglasses. Hi, thanks very much. Uh, my name is Jeff Tyson. I'm a reporter with DevX uh, here in Washington. I'm interested in better understanding what um, the success or failure of U.S. healthcare reform means for some of these global efforts to expand universal health coverage. I know the Wor World Health Organization, many other global health organizations, the World Bank are involved in a number of coalitions um, to put pressure on policymakers around the globe to expand access to universal health care. And so I'm just interested in, in, in better understanding whether these folks should be interested in this very domestic debate that's happening in the US and, and if the outcomes have any implications for these efforts. I, you know, I, I can't speak too much to international comparisons, although actually I do. I, I, I went to grad school in London and I have here, I just, my, my NHS card literally, um, no, I have, have, have not used it at all. Reminder, I, I, I guess, of the, the, what I view as the, the wrong way to do healthcare. Um, you know, I, I think in some respects it's sui generis here. I have a single payer or they have private health insurance companies, and they don't kind of had, have an employer as a third-party middleman, which gets back to some of the, the history of the tax treatment of health insurance. It goes back to World War II and, and, and so on. Um, so I don't know how much of it is, is directly 
uh, uh, relatable to other countries. Um, you know, the, the, the one issue that, that always kind of, of, of sticks out to me is on the drug price side of things is that we're one of the few countries, in fact, there was a, a Department of Commerce report back in the Bush administration, we're one of the few countries, I think the only OECD country, that doesn't have some form of price controls on um, uh, pharmaceutical companies. And I, I always find it very interesting that politicians in Western Europe or in Canada who kind of want to thumb their nose down at us and say, well, you don't have universal health coverage. Okay, well, that's nice because you're free riding on our pharmaceutical companies. And how would you like it if, you know, they didn't negotiate and they, didn't, they either pulled their drugs or you're not going to get these negotiated, really dictated prices by foreign governments that the National Health Service comes in and just undercuts. And really, they're free riding on American innovation um, in the process. And that's something that, that most is really kind of underreported, um, I think, both here and overseas. I, I guess I'd make, I'd make two points about um, how to think about health coverage in different countries. One is that um, you have to be respectful of your starting points. Um, some of the things that we've been talking about today that I've been in favor of, you know, I wouldn't be if we were starting from scratch. I wouldn't be in favor of any health credit or deduction. I just just we happen to have evolved this system and this seems to me to be the, the best way forward. The second is we need to be clear about uh, our goals with respect to health, health coverage, and financial security. Um, it does seem to me that the major benefit that health insurance provides is financial security. Uh, and that, for me, argues in favor of um, making it possible for people to buy catastrophic coverage. Um, and uh, if, you're, if you're thinking in terms of improving people's health outcomes, uh, then um, uh, I wouldn't necessarily be thinking in terms of, of how you change uh, insurance markets. I might be looking at things like um, people's behaviors and, uh, and lifestyles. I had to laugh. Uh, Chris was talking about, I used to uh, be a speechwriter for Mike Levitt, who was Secretary of Health and Human Services. And he gave a speech in the waning days of of his tenure there uh, over in France, I think in Paris, about innovation and how Europeans are basically free riding on American innovation, especially in pharmaceuticals. And, uh, and he's, he's making these points, being relatively hard hitting. And one of the Frenchmen there cut off his mic. <laughs> True story. American traditions of free speech are not universal it. either. Not, no, not a normal occurrence for a cabinet secretary in the United States traveling abroad. Sir, on the aisle. You have to be mindful of other people's state religions. <laughs> My name is Sam Miranda. I don't have an affiliation. I'm retired. Um, just to touch, I have a comment and a question. Uh, first, I, I guess I'm a constituency of one on uh, eliminating the employer-based uh, health care. That's a relic of World War II, and uh, it, it's kind of like it's kind of like rent control in New York City. It, I, I think its time has come, um, especially as, as we see. Uh, efforts to uh, to increase portability of things like pensions and, and so on, the use of IRAs and 401ks and so on. Um, <clears throat> What's your question, sir? The question is, um, in policymaking, uh, you, you come up with, with something like Obamacare, for example, and I believe the objective was back in 2010 that everyone who didn't have health insurance would have it, and I think at that time it was something like 10% of the population or 30 million people. And I'm wondering what it is 
today in 2016, how many more people have gotten health insurance and how much did that cost? Well, supposedly it's about 20 million people have health insurance, although again, most of them, about 60% of them are just on Medicaid, which is not really what most of us would think of as health insurance. Only 8 million people have been added to private insurance, according to the, C the Congressional Budget Office, and again, that's 2.5% of the population. So it's been 2,400 pages for 2.5% of the estimate population. That seems on the high side to me. To me. Yeah, well, it could well be. <laughs> this is the CBO. Um, and the 20 million also includes people under age 26 who are on their parents' policies, and it, it, it's not, it, it, it is the broadest possible number. Um, the number on the exchanges may end up being 10 million um, by the end of this year. And some of that, that includes people like me who have, in DC, you have no choice. You have to buy private, insur private insurance from the government exchange. Uh, and then people whose plan plans were canceled and they were forced to go into, the, they were kind of dragooned into the exchange. Um, I actually agree in terms of wanting to get rid of the employer-based system. I don't think, and, and to Ramesh's point, Nobody would have created this system uh, if we were starting from scratch. Um, the flip side to your point is that the biggest bulwark against Bernie Sanders' single-payer health care system, and there are about 50 of them, okay, the, but the biggest, but the number one argument is that involves getting rid of the health coverage of 150 to 170 million people. Um, on employer-based. On, on, on employer-based plans. And... You know, folks on the right would always have an individually that you buy your own health plan and you just take it with you from job to job through into retirement, so forth. On, folks on the left, of course, always wanted single payer. And there was an analogy um, used, and I think I was at a presentation at Brookings, and this must have been 10 years ago, that I think Zeke Emanuel used it, um, but I'm not 100% certain that basically the idea is you have all these people on this boat, okay, who have universal health or, or who have, have employer-based health coverage. And both sides are trying to tell people on this boat saying, oh, come over here. We'll build a better boat for you. We'll build a better boat. Well, and you're on a boat. You, you want to folk, and, and you don't believe that this other boat is, is good or it's going to sink or, or kind of what. And, and so that's what both sides have, have been faced with of this push-pull of, of the employer-based system. It's, it's good in the sense that it staves off single-payer. It's bad in the sense that it is inefficient, and it encourages people to over-consume health care, and is one of the things that has led to rising costs. So I, I think it's suppressed wage growth. And, and so you'll find sympathy from all three of us, I think, on that front. The question is, what do you end up doing about it? Yeah. He has to revitalize the individual market. Right. And I would say, you know, because I, I mentioned this as a political problem earlier that people fear disruption. Uh, and I would just say sort of building on what Chris said, there, it's not an unreasonable uh, public sentiment. Um, you know, when people come up, well, I've got these... I've got this great blackboard model, and this new system uh, is really going to work out great for you. It's not unreasonable for people to say, look, I've got health insurance. It's working pretty well. Please don't screw around with it. Do you have any other questions? Well, can I, let me just ask, is there anybody else who wanted to ask a question? Because we, we have one minute left. I want to make sure to get as many people in as possible. Uh, don't make, <laughs> I guess, uh, gentlemen, on, 
What are the cost estimates on? Uh, we don't ever get to see here? cost estimates looking backward, only forward. Uh, gentleman on the aisle, I guess here. Uh, I would say the overall cost has come in under projections just because so many people so many were covered. People. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, my name's Stephen uh, Thomas. Uh, I'm just a regular citizen. Look at C-SPAN. Uh, I recall that right after Obamacare was enacted. Uh, President Obama started giving out exemptions, uh, mm. uh, I think, for the employer mandate. And I recall about 100 exemptions that were given out, labor unions. Uh, I think McDonald's got one, some other major corporations that had been campaign donors. And uh, what, whatever uh, happened, and how does, how does this fit in with what we do to reform Obamacare when presumably uh, 100 major labor unions and corporations are already exempt from it. Yeah. So, so, so that actually was a, a temporary, the way, those, those waivers, and more than half of them went to people in union plans. Um, but what happened was there were certain provisions of the law that took effect six months after enactment, so September of 2010. And they said banning annual and lifetime limits on uh, uh, coverage. These plans were sort of mini-med plans, was, was what they were referred to. They might cover $10,000 of expenses a year. Quite honestly, they're not, they were not great health insurance plans. Okay? I, I wouldn't buy a plan like that. They will cover two trips to the doctor every year if you get sick, but they won't provide you a lot of protection if you get hit by a bus or you have a heart attack, which is exactly the opposite of how a conservative would structure health co coverage. Speed you along. The, the administration made a decision to exempt these plans until 2014 that some coverage was better than no coverage, and uh, but that exemption has now expired basically because people can get better coverage by going to the exchanges and getting subsidies. So that, that issue was an issue. It shows the problems with the benefit mandates, but it has been overtaken by events basically. I'm glad you asked that question because it gets to a larger point even beyond the exemptions, uh, which is that quite apart from the inefficiency and the centralization and the coercion, Obamacare is a standing affront to the rule of law. Yeah. Uh, so much of those 2,700 pages are the secretary shall and the secretary may, and it's just a grant of discretionary authority to the executive branch of the government. That's the way a lot of modern legislation reads. It's not the way legislation traditionally read, um, and it's not. And I think it's very much. It's very hard to reconcile with the constitutional design of our government. Nobody, I mean, people give uh, congressmen a hard time, and maybe fairly so, for not reading the thing. But you can read all 2,400 pages. You're not going to understand much of any of it. And a lot of it is not really settled there anyway. Like Ramesh says, it's just, it just punts it to the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And even beyond that, President Obama took liberties and went beyond the law and, and in a rather lawless fashion, I think, implemented parts of it that he wanted to, didn't implement other parts that he wanted to. Uh, a... Uh, and the Supreme Court basically said, ah, good enough for government work. Right. I mean, Several occasions. Charles Kessler at uh, Claremont McKenna College uh, made the point one time that the Obamacare is not even really properly referred to as a law. It's, it's, it's not what the founders would have thought of as a law. Law is something people can read and understand. Citizens can read and understand. It's, it's basically an entire legal code. And it's a legal code that even, even despite all of its pages and all of its complexity, maybe in part because of that, uh, 
still leaves a lot to be determined by the executive branch outside of the normal channels of law. Um, well, I'm sorry I didn't get to your question, and uh, we uh, and listening, and uh, let's give a round of applause here.